So we're going to continue this morning in a sermon series called Being the Church. If you've been with us for a while, you know the deal with this. We've been going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're about halfway through the book, and so actually more than halfway today. And so if you're feeling like, man, I'm ready for the next thing, well, good news. We're over halfway done. That's awesome. But uh, we've been learning tons about what it means to be the church, uh, both individually through our faith in Christ and communally as the body, as, as his people called out of the world. And so one thing we always want to be very sure of is that we're biblically literate. That's one of the... One of the goals of gathering together is to know what God's word says and then to apply it to our lives. And it's an individual responsibility, but it's a communal responsibility. Uh, some of you might be reading uh, Bible 365 with us still. If you are, praise God for your tenacity. Um, we're this far along. What is that, like two-thirds-ish uh, through the Bible or so at this point? But we just heard about how Israel discovered the uh, scriptures and that brought about a, a full repentance for Israel and a conviction to follow God and not false gods. And that kind of ties with today's message, actually. So it's kind of interesting. That was our, our readings for this week. And so that's why it's so important that we would know what the Word of God says and that we could apply it to our lives. Um, we're going to do what we always do, family. But we're going to pray because we, we believe we have no knowledge of ourselves, but He reveals it to us. And so uh, pray with me if you would. This morning, Father, we come to you as uh, excited worshipers of you, uh, knowing you, knowing, being known by you, having you invite us into your kingdom and into your people, and getting a sense, just a little taste, Father, of the call that we have to respond to you, to follow you in our lives. I pray, Lord, this morning as we open your word, you would help us to understand it. Uh, your word says you will teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit to know what your word says. We might be able to, to know you better and live more in accord with what you've commanded us to do. And so, Father, this morning as we come into your word, I pray your Holy Spirit would teach us in that way that we could be changed because of who you are and who you say that we are. I ask, Father, this morning that we would be given humility today, that if we need to be humbled, you would humble us that we could rightly discern your truth and do it in such a way that it manifests in love. Oh, what an awesome opportunity we have this morning. May you be glorified. May Jesus' name be made famous amongst the nations, but first amongst us in our own hearts as we follow you together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, cool. So uh, we're going to uh, jump in here today, but I wanted to say something to you, and I haven't said this in a while, but it's I don't know if... You've been here long enough, you probably know how much planning does or doesn't go into these services. But there's these awesome moments like uh, the song we just sang, I Am Set Free. There was no coordination on that. That was just God's leading. And so it was really funny when we saw that it actually lined up perfectly with what we're going to talk about today, which is freedom or being free in Christ and what that really looks like in our lives. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you brought a Bible, you should know where that's at. If you have your phone, we have open Wi-Fi here. You can grab uh, that if you have a, a device or something you want to use. Or the Bibles are under the chair rows around you. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those to read along. It's on page 797, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you'll know that Paul has now gotten into the teaching part of his text. He started to say, and now for the reasons that you wrote to me about. And you know, we talked about things about um, uh, remaining where we are, where he placed us when he called us into faith, about um, what it means to be in relationship in the church, specifically in marriage and in singleness. And now he's going to turn to a new topic here. You can see it in chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrifice to idols. So just real quick now, he's moving clearly to a new topic, right? Now about food sacrifice to idols. And then he says this, we know that all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
I'm going to read three verses here. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. And so he's going to turn to this new topic, coming off of the other topic, right, of relationship, and it's all kind of blended together here, but he's turning to this topic of food sacrifice to idols. That was very common practice in that day that you would, you would make offerings to a God and you would partake in that offering as a way to worship that God, right? This might sound strange to you, but I'll have you know that just a few short years ago, I was in a course here in the local area at Greenville College, not Greenville University, called World Religions. And one of the things we did is we went and we interacted with people from other faith backgrounds. And one of our experiences in that interaction was in St. Louis, Missouri, which is like, what, 35 minutes from us? And we were invited over there to set, and I believe, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but I believe it was Hindu people. We were invited to go over there and set with Hindus. But one of the things that they wanted us to do is they wanted us to eat the food that they had made as a form of worship that they believed that by feeding people, they were inviting them in to, their, to partake in their God and all this stuff. And so what we were told before we went as believers, now we are believers in Christ, is you can choose to abstain from the food because you think that that's inappropriate. And if that's your conviction, fair enough. You can choose to partake in the food if that's your conviction, and that's fair enough. But the only thing they ask us not to do, which is kind of funny in hindsight, but, but really you're talking to college students, is... Uh, you can't say you're going to take it and then go make a face when you eat it like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> that was an unacceptable thing to do. You could either have it or not have it, but you can't eat it and then spit it out and go, this is disgusting. Who would eat this stuff? Because this is very important to these people. And we were there to talk to these people about what it means, uh, who God is. And we were there to learn. Now, it was a unique learning environment, but I think there was a lot of wisdom. And then here this morning, I hope you will see that there's actually that very same idea laid out here by Paul in Scripture. He's going to talk to us about two, two types of knowledge this morning, two kinds of knowledge. We find it right there. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, and he says this, we know that we all possess knowledge. Now, that's like saying everybody knows something, right? Or, or everybody thinks they know everything. You know, this could either be an idiom of the culture, which means just a saying, you know, like they just kind of some slang that they used to say together. Or it could be that the church had written to Paul with the question about not touching women anymore to also say, we know that we should not be eating in these temples or we know we can eat in these temples if we want to. And he may have been using their words back to them like, yeah, we know everyone has knowledge, right? But then he breaks down this and there's two forms of knowledge here. We know that we all possess knowledge. But he says this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And in that one verse there, we're going to break that down into the two forms of knowledge that Paul's going to say the church should know, the church should know about. And the first is this, there's knowledge that puffs up. There's the kind of knowledge that puffs up. Matter of fact, if you look down in verse 2, it kind of delineates it here a bit. We're going to kind of go back and forth between verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Knowledge that puffs up is the man who thinks he knows something. He thinks he knows something of himself. And by the way, the man there isn't a man. It's a person. A person, a man or woman, who thinks, I have knowledge unto myself. It's a very self-satisfied, very self-aggrandizing knowledge, right? And this is, Paul's now concerned about what? Spiritual interactions for the church, how we interact with others. And he's like, some of, some of this knowledge puffs us up, and it's the kind of knowledge that is self-centered knowledge. The man who thinks he knows something. 
Paul says. But then he makes another point. He says, but he does not yet know as he ought to know then. He's not saying here you can't know. He's like, if you think you have knowledge of yourself, you don't yet know in the right way. You have the wrong kind of knowledge. And I'm going to go to verse 3 because I want you to see what this knowledge looks like. It says, but ultimately, um, the, the man who loves God is known by God. And that's the root of true knowledge. We'll get that in a minute, right? But it's this being known and therefore knowing God. And what's the word say? Loving God. And so what he's going to say is that this puffed up kind of knowledge is unloving. It's unloving. We know that we all know something, he says, but there's a puffed up kind of knowledge that means that we don't know what we ought to know and ultimately we don't love God or other people. So this is what it looks like. And bear with me. I was, I was digging around in my old youth ministry stuff. <laughs> and I found balloons. So this is what puffed up knowledge looks like. It's this kind of a conversation. Let me tell you something about what I know. I'm going to pass out. What is that? It's useless knowledge. Do you see how, just look at what I'm going to do. By the way, it was a water balloon. That's really hard to blow up a water balloon, <laughs> in case you're wondering. <clears throat> Got to recover for a minute. But look, it comes to nothing. And, and Paul's like, and ultimately, that's not loving. We all know we shouldn't eat that food. We all know we should eat that food. We all know. And he's like, ah, yeah, we all know, right? But maybe if you think you know like that, you don't know what you need to know. And what you need to know, and Paul's going to lay down this principle is that you are known by God and that therefore we can love God and therefore you're going to see him delineate now this issue of eating food sacrificed to idols and it might seem like a slam dunk to you well, of course I can't eat food sacrificed to idols maybe that's where you stand or of course I can I, I this, you know we're going to talk about why why Paul says that's true but the man who thinks he knows does not yet know as he ought to know but the man who Loves God, is known by God. So the second kind, so that's the first kind of love, is love that puffs up. And I don't know if you've had that experience before, but I want to kind of just spend one more minute there saying, you know, have you ever had a spiritual conversation or a spiritual situation where you walked away feeling kind of proud of yourself, kind of full of yourself? You're like, I got him. I won. I did it. That's probably a sign of an ultimately unloving kind of knowledge you probably didn't transcend into this much more uh organic or internal uh reality of a love that's different than the puffed up kind of love ultimately we're going to find out in this passage today that that kind of love that puffs up is destructive well what's the opposite of being destructive then see it there in verse two love that builds up this is the second kind of love that Paul's going to talk about. Now about food sacrifice idols, we know that they're, we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who does not think he knows something, the man who thinks he knows something doesn't know as he ought to know, but the one who loves God and is known by God is the kind that builds love up. What's this look like then? Here's the difference. So instead of a cheap balloon where I can huff and puff, it begins to look a lot like tools and equipment, you know? And you have to get 
you have to get stuff out. And you've got to take a little bit of time. You might have to have some practice. You might have had to do some things wrong before. But you begin to work. You begin to serve. You begin to love in a tangible way. And it's not this kind of blowing ourselves up, but rather it's just kind of substantial. You can feel it, right? If I, if I put this stuff together, it's going to be something when I leave. If I took the time and I got a screw out and I put some screws and some boards and I made these, I put it together, it's going to endure. And Paul says this is the other kind of love, a love that builds up. And builds up what? Literally builds up others, builds up the church, builds up the glory of God, and, and, and in some way ultimately builds ourselves that we are then built. But I want you to see the difference in this. We've already talked about it. The man who loves God is known by God. That means that it's not something we do external to God to show how much we know about God. It's about something that God is doing inside us because he knows us. And he works himself through us in this very tangible demonstration of love to both God and to others. And you can tell that this is all the groundwork for Paul because in, when he gets to verse 4, he's like, so then. Because that's true, there's two kinds of knowledge, and because one of them is a puffed-up knowledge and the other one is like a building-up knowledge, because those things are true, because some of you think you know but you don't yet know as you ought to know, because you need to know that you're known by God, because all that stuff's true then about the food sacrificed to idols, and he goes on then in verse 4 to lay that down. So it's about us being known by God. I just want to stop for one second and say this. We don't want to proof text our lives. Like, we don't want to just, like, quote out scriptures. That being said, this verse in particular, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, is an overarching principle of our spiritual lives as a church. And we ought to use it as some form of a measure against any interaction we're having. Is this puffing up or building up? Is this for my own self-gratification so I can feel about how much I know about the Bible or about Jesus or about God or anything else? Or is it something about building up the faith, building up the community of Christ, building someone into the community of Christ? So Paul's going to use that principle to lay over the issue of food sacrifice to idols. And again, you might not think that's relevant now, but the truth is these things still exist. So then verse 4, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and there is no God but one. For even though there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed, now here's what Paul says, there are many gods and there are many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And so he lays out this idea that, um, that, we, uh, that there are these uh, false gods out there. So Paul affirms a couple of truths here. The first is that idols are nothing but God is the only thing. And so it looks like this then, right? That's out of order. False gods are no gods. False gods are no gods. And so, uh, or, I'm so sorry, I want to say that right. False gods are no God. And this is the problem with idolatry. 
that if you think you can worship any old God and eventually gets to the real God, you're offending the real God who said, don't worship false gods, <laughs> right? I'm going to say it again. Like, there's this kind of mentality out there that, well, we can just worship any old God and the God behind the God is the real God. Yeah, have you heard this logic before? And if you just worship whatever God you know, then the God behind the real God is honored because you worship the false God that you knew. The problem with that is the God behind all the gods has said, don't worship false gods. So there's no, none of that playing around about other gods in our lives. God says, I alone am God. It's one of the commands, of course, of God. The Ten Commandments. I am God. You should have no false gods before me. And that means between us. It doesn't mean before me like I should be, you know, first in your list of gods. It means, no, between me and you, there should be no other gods. I am the one true God. False gods are no gods at all. He says here that idols are nothing. So one of the things that happened with this class that I was going to um, was we, we actually went into a temple and we watched as people dressed statues. And they dressed them. We thought, oh, this is like a metaphor, right? Because you're dressing a statue. It's a metaphor. And they go, no, that's God. Like they were seriously saying that's God. This was like maybe five, six, seven, ten years ago, something like that, right? Like, this was their religious practice. And then you have to go, no, wait, that's not God, right? And, and that's not an allusion to God. Like, you think that's actually God, an inanimate being. If you read the Old Testament, and this is why I hope that many of you are still maybe journeying with us on the Bible on 365, it, he says that very thing, have your God speak. Dale and um, Steve just preached about this, you know, uh, when Elijah's mocking the false god Baal. Have him do something. What, is he asleep right now? Because God has always said this about himself. I am the God who speaks. I am the God who moves. And therefore, any false God is no God at all. So Paul does affirm this truth of these idol worshipers, that it's not real God. It's not God at all. But then he says this, there's only one God. In fact, I said to you, there are people who dress statues in this in their life. But I want to say this real quick too. There are still many things that rule our lives. I want you to notice that the two, he lays out two kind of parallel lines here where he says, there is but one God, and he gives God credit for the things that God does. He says, there is God, no God but one, for even if they're so-called gods, hang on a second. Um, yeah, yeah. Yet for us, in verse 6, there is but one God, one, the Father, from whom all things come, that's the, all the gifts come from him, and through whom or for whom we live and there is but one lord that's commander that's jesus christ through whom same thing all things come to us and through whom we live and so there's this idea that that's those that dual track there's one god and one lord but he says in that caveat in the middle paul says as indeed there are indeed many gods and lords and what's he saying there is there are many things in our life that we choose to worship instead of the true god and so he's going to kind of pull out the scope on this question about food sacrifice to idols and say, there are, of course there are things that people are worshiping that they ought not be worshiping. There are things that we worship in our lives we ought not be worshiping. And so there are false gods in our lives. I want to, break, I want to talk for a minute, and this is a little dangerous. I want to be gentle, but some things I've seen over the years in my pastorate, I've seen people who have magic rocks. And the magic rocks help them feel better. And they believe it. And, they, and I'm not mad about it, but they say, I believe in Jesus Christ and this rock. And that scares me. Because that seems like idolatry. It seems like we're saying Jesus and something else can make me better. And I don't like it. There's something in my spirit that goes, no. 
No. No. It doesn't. There, there's a whole movement amongst um, uh, concoctions and potions that you can mix up to make your house smell a certain way to change your moods and stuff. And I know I'm maybe stepping on toes here. It's fine. It can smell good. Your house can smell great. But it's not God. It's not. Be careful. There's this movement of oils. I just had someone tell me about this new mystery oil. It's the oil of God. Wait, what? Something that's, that's beyond Christ? No, 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 no. Christ too, Christ too, but also oil. Church. Woo! Dangerous. I want to be real. It's dangerous. Or how about le- more innocuous things? The kind of car you drive. Oh, I like that symbol on the front of my car. That symbol on the steering wheel. Look at the symbol I'm driving. Like it matters to God to us sometimes or the kind of job we have. I heard someone recently talking and they said that politics is the modern religion. That that's the thing where there's heretics that are thrown out, you can't be in the room and you hate each other over it and you'll kill each other over it. What? Politics. The, the, the inner workings of man? That's not God. Maybe, maybe these aren't true for you. Here's another one though. False gods in our life. False lords. The life of leisure. Oh, when I get to the day I can put my feet up and not work anymore. I get to the day Man, I can set my own schedule. That's great, man. There's great seasons in life. But it's not God. And it's not our commander, our Lord. You see, the problem with this kind of idolatry, temple idolatry, is they ask a very narrow question. Can we eat the food? Can we eat the food? And he's like, there's plenty of lords and gods we ought not be submitting to. But we know there's one true God. And Paul's going to make a case here that the one true God should rule our hearts in all things. And that includes in how we demonstrate our knowledge to other people, to one another. So he says, for us, then, in spite of all those things, and those are just things, right? I'm not mad about the kind of car you drive. I'm not mad about the kind of job you have. I'm not mad about the kind of leisure life you have. I'm not mad about the oil you use. Really, but they're just things. They're not God. So let's don't worship them. And they're not our Lord. So let's don't obey them. Instead, let's worship the true God that we know. Wait, the true God do, who's, who knows us. See, that's how Paul started this conversation. You are known by God. And therefore, you love God. And therefore, you build others up in love. This is the way that he orients these things. The God who has given us. Look at what the word says. All things. All that stuff I talked about, I'm not mad about it. It's just stuff. It came from God, right? Or the, um, the one who tells us how to live, in whom we live, through whom we live, is the same God. And the same gifts come from the Lord. That's Jesus Christ himself. And I want to differentiate just for a moment again so we don't miss it. It's Jesus the Messiah, the anointed, the Holy One of God, God incarnate, God in flesh, who is the same as God the Father leading us in our lives and giving us all good things. So then with this idea of false gods, then I'm kind of going back to my question about, well, what was the right thing to do when we went over to St. Louis? Should we have eaten the food or not eaten the food? What, What was... What was the most loving thing to do? And it comes to a question. I don't know if you had this experience in your life. But in all these areas, have you ever concerned yourself with someone else around you? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you don't want to cause someone else to struggle? There's something you have the right to do. You have the freedom to do. You're allowed to do because all things come from God. And there's no, the false gods aren't real gods at all. But you have an ultimate concern for a brother or sister or one who may become a brother or sister that would cause you to make a decision differently. Because this is where Paul then really gets into the, um, 
the meat of the matter. In verse 7, it's this. Others may stumble. See, now here's the problem that Paul has with this whole temple idol eating. Others may stumble. Look at what verse 7 says. But not everyone knows this. Knows what? That there's but one God and false gods aren't real gods at all. Not everyone knows that. And we ought not presume that knowledge upon people. Therefore, there's a danger in us choosing the will to partake willy-nilly without some discernment or consideration. Look at what the word says. Some people are still so accustomed to idols, and that means in their time and in their day, but I must say, in today as well, we're so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, you know, and since their conscience is weak, their conscience becomes defiled. That means it's ultimately bad for them to partake, even though there's a right to partake, even though it's not a real God. For that person who has a weak conscience, it's defiled, but food does not bring us near to God, and that right there would fall flat in the face of my, friend, the Hind, my friends, the Hindus. Food does not draw you near to God. The things that you put in your mouth does not cause you to get closer to him. That's not how this works. And Jesus taught the same thing. So he says, it's not that food draws us near to God. We are no worse if we eat and no better if we do. And this goes back to some cred for Greenville College. Because they're like, do what you feel led to do. That was a right biblical teaching. Now, they didn't bust out this verse and quote it to us and have us read it and study it before we went. They just expected us to behave as semi-mature adults, which is hard when you're a college student, and, uh, and, and, and to make a discernment and know it's a spiritual battle that we're in. And so he says that food doesn't bring us near to God, but we're no worse if we do eat and no better if we do. There's nothing happening. But look at verse 9. But be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block for the weak. And this then is where a mature believer begins to realize their call in the world. There's no one-size-fits-all answer for this. Can you do it? Yeah. Should you do it? Maybe. Maybe not. It's not a blanket answer. And sometimes we back ourselves into corners in this church and we say, well, of course we know we should never or, of course, we should always. And Paul started, he's like, no, that's, that's puffed up knowledge. But instead, to know that you're known by God and to love God, we ought to discern then this truth that it doesn't matter. But there, are, there may be people around us who would be affected by our decision. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not bring about a stumbling block for a brother or sister or for someone who else who is weak. Because if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, uh, sees you have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to the idols? He's like, they're going to go, hey, hey, Bill's doing it. I can do it. That's permission. Like, if he's doing it, he knows. I can do it too. But they don't really know why. They don't really know Christ. So this weaker brother, look at what the word says, for whom Christ died is, what's the word? Destroyed by your knowledge. You know, why does Paul say knowledge puffs up, but love builds up? Because it leads to destruction. It's just like that balloon we saw, right? Just pieces on the floor. Nothing. It was a waste. It was, it was an exercise in futility. As a matter of fact, it leans toward what J.C. preached about, clanging symbols, a response without love. And so it says, um, 
For if anyone with weak conscience sees you eating in the temple, he, won't he be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to the idols? So this weak brother from Christ died is destroyed by what? Your own knowledge. And I would not, at that point, I would call it foolishness. It's not knowledge at all. If we've destroyed a brother or sister by our own self-indulgence. When you sin against your brothers and sisters in this way and you wound their weak consciences, you sin against Christ. See, now there's the danger. He's like, it's not just you're sinning, you know, you're not sinning with God, but you're sinning against the brother or sister, and therefore you're wounding them, and you're sinning against Christ. And this is the Christ who died for me and you, and who died for our brothers and sisters. Woo, that's heavy. When you do these things, you sin against Christ. Now Paul then comes to some conclusions for himself on what he says, how he discerns this to be true in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. See, his conviction is if I know someone is going to have a hard time with this, I'm not going to do it. If I know it's, there's someone, I just want to point out, there's a couple things happening here that he says, if I know a brother or sister will cause to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Do you think Paul wants to be a vegetarian? It doesn't sound like it. It's all like he's fine with meat. But he says, if I, if I believe that my eating of meat is going to cause a brother or sister to fall into sin because they don't understand why I can eat meat and it's okay, I'm never going to eat it again. And you can put any other kind of conviction in, the, um, in that spot of meat. He will abstain from things. Why? For the sake of a brother or sister that they might not sin if they don't understand. And I would also say this means that he must know something about the brother or sister. Because this is where we get kind of paid into a box. We can't do anything because everything could be a mistake because somebody could be watching. No. But we ought to always be pressing back into what? And Paul's going to turn the page here. Pressing back into what? The freedom we have in Christ. So he's not, I don't even think he's saying forever. He says, I will never eat meat again, but I don't think he literally means, like he would, but he hopes he don't have to because he hopes eventually he can talk to a brother or sister and say, hey, the meat doesn't matter. Christ matters. There's but one God and he died for your sins that you be free for all time and therefore we can partake with a clear conscience that I might not cause him or her to fall. He turns the corner right there and he says this, am I not free? And he's going to change topics here, so get ready for that. But it's tied into that idea. Can I not do these things? Am I not allowed to do these things? I want you to remember who Paul is here. Paul's the guy who's going out and preaching to the Gentiles. Paul's the guy who's, who's kind of left Jerusalem and the Jews, and he said, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to preach to the nations about the gospel because the Holy Spirit's being revealed out here. And he's like, do I not have the right to go and engage in these ways? Am I not free? What's he say about himself? Am I not an apostle? Am I not one sent by God into the mission field to do the work? I think he's begging the question here. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You remember Paul got to see Jesus in his conversion experience. And do we not get to see that opportunity as the same? Maybe not knock off your horse, but you got to see God in your life in a tangible way. And he says this. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Like Paul's actually labored for this church in Corinth. Even though I may, I may not have been an apostle sent to the others, surely I am an apostle to you. Because why? He brought the gospel to him. He's like, listen, you're free in Christ. You don't have to do all this sacrifice stuff anymore. The, the fulfillment, the, the temple promise of the fulfillment has come in Jesus. This is a huge deal. And not only that, but that the Gentiles are invited to participate too. And that we ought to go out and share the good news. Listen to me. There's a God that loves you so much that you don't, you don't give food to him. He gives food to you. 
that you don't show how much you love him. He shows how much he loves you. See, it's backwards. And it has no place for pride. Because you don't get to do nothing but be saved. And he does everything because he's God. This is the free gospel that Paul is preaching. And, and then there's this principle which might be out of order here. Faith is freedom. Faith is freedom. Paul says, am I not free? Yeah, Paul, you're free. Am I not an apostle? Yeah, Paul, you're an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Yeah, you've seen Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord. And we are the work, the result of your work in the Lord. Paul's making all this to make a case for his, his own place in the kingdom of God. I may not be an apostle, but I'm truly an apostle to you. You're the seal, he says, of my apostleship in the Lord. You're the proof that I'm an apostle of Christ because I'm preaching the gospel to you and you're hearing it, you're receiving it. This is my defense then and those who shut in judgment against me. Now, Paul's going to line out some ways. Um, it's kind of interesting how things happen in threes here, but he's going to line out some ways in which he defends himself. So, verse four, don't we have the right to food and drink? Like, can I eat and drink what I want? He's begging the question. Yeah, Paul, you can because you're an apostle. You know Christ, right? Of course you can. That's the first. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? as well as the other uh, apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, that's Peter, right? That's where we get the idea that Peter's probably married, probably not a single dude, right? Paul says, I'm a single dude. We just heard that from him. But he's like, don't, and he's gonna talk about Barnabas, don't Barnabas and I have a right to take a wife if we want to? He's going back to the previous issue about touching women, right? Don't we have the right? Can we do that also? Or are we the only ones? Or in verse six, is it only I and Barnabas who must uh, who must work for a living. So there's this third part. Can I dedicate myself to full-time ministry? Can I not be officially in full-time ministry? Must I have another job while I do ministry? Is that a requirement for me? Or can I be like the other apostles and just dedicate myself wholly to preaching the good news? And so he's saying, I'm free in my faith. I think Paul's begging the question on all those things that yes, yes, he can eat and drink what he likes. Yes, he can take a wife, a believing wife, if he wants to. Yes he, can, uh, yes, he can dedicate his life to full-time ministry. And Barnabas too. Absolutely. Nothing's stopping him because he's free in his faith. He's free to respond to the gospel. And I want you to see that again, lest I belabor this though. It's about God knowing us and setting us free to respond. This all becomes our root of worship, our root of life, and how we can live differently because we're free to respond to God in the way that God has uniquely called and qualified us to respond. Paul's making a case, a defense for himself. Now he's going to delineate this last point here. He's going to talk about being in ministry full-time. And he equates this way in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? I want us to think about these three ideas. Who plants some vineyard and doesn't eat of its grapes? Or who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk? Three models there. A soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. That's Paul's model for ministry. A soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. And he's like... If I'm a soldier, and I want you to think about the question he's asking even now, because I'm going to say, oh, the Bible's from 2,000 years ago. How's it relevant today? Can you imagine? I heard a story recently about a military endeavor, and the endeavor went like this. Um, we want you to serve in the military, and you have to buy your own gun. You have to buy your own bullets, and you have to show up at a.m. on Monday. That was a real thing. And you go, What? No, if you're going to be a soldier, they're going to provide these things to you. They're going to say, here's the equipment to do the job. Can you imagine if our military had to provide their own equipment? What kind of military would we have? 
It's like, no, 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 no. A soldier is going to participate. A soldier is going to partake with the, the, uh, his overseer, his lord, his masters in his life, right? So, so that's the first is a soldier. And by the way, don't, the imagery is on purpose there. It's a battlefield. I mean, Paul's scarred. He's wounded. He's in a fight of his life. And the last thing he needs is people who are with him on his side saying, what are you doing, Paul? Why do you waste your time like this? Who do you think you are? It says, does a soldier not have a right? Or does the soldier serve his own expense? No. Does the one who plants a vineyard not have the right to eat its grapes? Can you imagine working in a vineyard all day and starve to death? Can you imagine picking grapes and going, oh, if I could just have one, but you can't. We know bosses like that, don't we? <laughs> don't, don't you eat it. You know, I'm amazed by one of the Old Testament commands given to the people of God was go through the field and take the harvest, but don't take it all and leave some and let someone else who doesn't deserve it come out and take some and eat. Do you think that the people working the vineyards were starving to death when they let the local population come in? It's called gleaning. They could glean extra fruit off the branches. There was a little left behind. They could participate. They could have some of it. Do you think that the workers weren't fed? No. They probably knew what a great grape tasted like. They probably knew what great wine tasted like because they're working for the master. This is a little twisted. We get used to like, like bad masters, bad lords, bad gods. This is the way God is. No, of course you're going to be well fed. Or this, who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk? Who cares for the sheep and doesn't drink of the milk? Of course you do. You know the sheep. You participate. And I, and I want to say that Paul's talking here about full-time ministry, but it applies to all of us because this is what he says in verse 8. Do I not say this merely from, do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? It is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. By the way, it's a great business principle right there. You don't starve the ox that's grinding up your grain. You feed the ox some of the grain so you can get more grain. That's the way you do this, right? So you're going to invest in the work so there's more work to be had. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? No. Surely he says it's for us, doesn't he? Yes. This was written for us because when, we, when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope, and here it is, of sharing in the harvest. And I want to say this. The church knows that we're invited to partake, that we can partake. The word means to, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to know part of the gospel. Part of the call that we have as a church to go out and share the gospel is we get to share the gospel. We get to see the gospel work. We get to engage. We get to let God work among us. And, and it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to do so when you're invited into it. Now, I'm not talking about full-time ministry. I'm talking about anyone. That if you go out and you share the gospel, you are partakers in the gospel yourself. That when we go out and we share the good news, we're reminded of the good news ourselves. He says, no. Those who are working in the harvest fields work in the hope of sharing in the harvest, Paul says. If we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right to support from you, then shouldn't we also have this right? And so Paul's like, man, we got these rights. We've been investing in you. We have a right to ask for it. We have a right to taste and see that God is good. We're not asking too much. But he's going to turn the corner one more time, and we're going to close with this. But we, that's him and Barnabas, did not use this right. See, here's another way. This goes right back to the temple worship idea. He said, I have the right to do it, but I didn't do it. There's a reason Paul didn't do it. But he's like, I had a right to do it, and I didn't do it. He says, no, 
I did not, we did not use these, this right. On the contrary, we have put up with anything rather than to hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share what's offered on the altar? That's a biblical principle in the Old Testament. That's exactly how the priests were fed is at the temple as part of the offerings. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He's making the case, but here in verse 15, but I have not used any of these rites and I am not writing this in the hope that you would do such things for me. I would rather die than to let anyone deprive me of this boast. What boast? That he hasn't used the freedom he has to be paid to be a preacher. For Paul, he says, no, I would die than have you deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast for I am compelled to preach. You see, he is, the word compelled means pushed or called you know, incited. There's a fire. We, we sang that song this morning. There's fire burning us, Lord. Like there's a compulsion toward the things that we're called to do in Christ. And he says, no, I can't boast in it because I'm compelled to preach. Listen to the word here. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, does that mean you should all be preachers? It's not what Paul's saying. But if God's calling you to do something, listen to me, church. Woe to us if we don't do it. Woe to us if we don't respond because it's a miserable life to have God calling us to do something and not act in obedience. You got questions about it? Fair enough. You don't know where it's going to end up? Fair enough. You ought to do it anyway. You ought to follow God anyway. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm discharging the, the trust that's committed to me. What's my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not take use, not make use of my rights while preaching it. He says this, the gospel's priceless. You want to ask Paul what you ought to pay him to preach you the gospel? And he would say, there's not enough money in the world. But it's another way of saying the gospel's free. He won't charge for it. He won't put a price on the gospel. No, instead, we bring it to you free of charge. We get to share it with you free of charge. What's the catch? There's no catch. You're being bought by a God who loves you. You must want something from me. I don't want anything from you. I want you to know the God who made you. You see, this is an upside down, backwards thing for our world to understand. You mean there's a God who wants nothing from me but to save me? You mean there's a God I cannot do anything to make love me more nor love me less? You mean there's a God who would love me in spite of all the crap I've done? You're like, yes. Yes, but hear me, priceless, free, doesn't mean cheap. It means there's an infinite worth. Why did Paul say, I would do anything but to deprive, I would rather die than deprive of this boast? Is that he says, there is an infinite value on the cross of Christ. And woe to me if I don't preach it to somebody. Woe to me if I don't share it with somebody. I've given the gospel to you free of charge. I've told you this before, church. And this is the weird thing about preaching as, as, my, as, from, as, as me. Because here's the truth. Y'all have set me aside to do this. And I get to do it. And I make it a habit. When I sit with somebody, I say, they go, well, how does this work? Is this what you do for a living? I'm like, yeah, other people have given that I can be free to you. I, whatever's happening. 
And I'm not saying that that's the only model, but that's a model. And I declare that freedom that there is a bought and paid for opportunity that is offered free of charge to other people because of your faithfulness. That the gospel is able to go to places it wouldn't go otherwise because of your faithfulness. This gospel is priceless, it's of infinite worth, and I've said it before, and I tell you, I, I just want to close with this, but I'll tell you what. One of my prayers from the beginning, <laughs> and I'm going to say it here in front of all of you because I mean it, if I was independently wealthy, if I didn't have a care in the world, I still want to preach the gospel. I would be like, Paul, I get it, man. It's out of your heart <laughs> that you would just, like, I'm preaching anyway. And people go, oh, no, no, no. It's because I know the Lord and you should know him too. He's not testing me in that yet, by the way, <laughs> to make me independently wealthy. But if he did, you can hold me to it. Didn't you say? Yeah, that's what I said. I'd preach it if I wasn't paid to preach it because it's the very word of God. So I have two questions as we close here it is. How can you participate in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can you participate practically in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't know. Maybe you're thinking of something already. You know where you can share it. Maybe there's someone in your life you need to share it with. But we have tangible ways you can, you can do this. Um, we, we have folks serving in Blast right now. We decided to do Blast all summer long. And I know Chris is able to be in here this morning. And she was saying what a blessing it's been just to be able to invest in the kids right? There's nursery opportunities come up in the fall. You can sit with babies. Let me ask you a question. How does holding babies glorify God and how is it worshiped him? Believe me, it is to serve in that way, to give a mom or a dad a, a respite a few hours a week where they're not holding the, the baby, that they can actually listen to the word of the Lord. Whew. Crabby coming up in the fall. Maybe there's a student you know who needs to be involved in our student ministries. You can help connect them to the ministry. Maybe you can serve in our crabby ministry. We're going to have outreach opportunities coming up. You can jump into one of those. PB&J was mentioned. We're looking at some stuff for the fall. Maybe you can come out. You go, ah, that's not really my thing. You know, you never know. You never know. Come out and get involved. But there's a million other ways. Those are just ones that I know about here at Family Bible Church. How can you go and to serve? How can you participate in the sharing of the gospel of Jesus? I would encourage you to do it. I would encourage you to use your gifts. And then the second question I have, that's the first. How can you serve the gospel the second is this um, are you known by God do you know that you're known do you know that he knows you and here's an important question do you know that you're saved do you know he bought you it, it, I would be so discouraged if there was anyone in this room that still thought that they could do enough good things to make God happy with them or they had to be right enough before God will forgive them or they have to look good enough before God redeems them. That is not the gospel. No, it's the gospel of God who knows us and because he knows us and knows our plight and knows our distance from him, he loves us and gives us son that we can be free. Listen, that's grace. That's humility for us and that's salvation from him. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to close with the final song, but I want you to pray with me those things, so pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for brothers and sisters who are there, here today. I do pray that the, that the uh, words were a grace and that they were received rightly by the power of your Spirit. I do pray, Father God, that uh, we would participate with you in those areas that you're calling us to participate, Lord, and, and that's all of us, that we would find those spots, those ways that we can respond to the great news that you gave us life, that you died that we may be free. And then, Father, for those who don't think they're known, for those who would say, yeah, God, but God doesn't, 
can't know that about me. We know that you know. We know that you know us. And Father, we want to be known by you. I pray this morning, Lord, that uh, if there's someone that's listening that just doesn't think that's true, that they, that they think they're too far gone, that they think that you've forgotten them, Lord, and only you can do this, but we, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to them in a deep, powerful, and abiding way that Jesus died to know them. That de- Jesus gave his life that they might be fully known by him. And that the sins are washed away. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Our sins are cleansed in the name of Jesus Christ. May we proclaim that gospel together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.